Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to SOAS and to an afternoon of scintillating uh, conversation. I'm delighted that the SOAS president, uh, Grasha Michelle, who, as you all know, is a global advocate for women's and children's rights, has agreed to have a conversation this afternoon on youth and education in Africa. And in conversation with her will be Chris Kramer, who's the Professor of Political Economy of Development uh, here at SOAS, and the former chair of the Centre of African Studies at the University of London, and most recently has been uh, involved in the Governance in Africa conversation series. Chris, Grasha, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Valerie, and, and welcome. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here, Dame Grass Michelle. Thank, thank you. you. Um, we're here to talk about mainly about the, uh, the themes that are of primary concern to you in your work, uh, but also the work of the, the Grasse Michelle Trust that, that you founded. And I know that you work on these issues mainly to do with women's rights, children's rights, education, through the Trust, but also through your involvement on a couple of uh, panels set up by the Secretary General of, of, of the UN. So that's what we'll talk about. We'll talk for a, a little bit between ourselves, and then we will open up to the audience, if that's OK. Mm -hmm. So I thought um, we should start by talking a little bit about education. And I wanted to ask you, given that you've got a long history of involvement with public policy for education in sub-Saharan Africa, to tell us a little bit about what you think has been the the big changes in the state of education in Africa, particularly given some recent estimates, for example, that more than half of the 124 million out-of-school children in the world currently live in, in Africa. Well, thank you for this uh, opportunity. And uh, let me start by reminding all of us that... Uh, when we speak of Africa, we have to remember that we are not talking of one country. We are talking of a continent, which is uh, made up of 54 countries. So there is no a short answer which can cover the nuances and the differences which you can find in such a diverse uh, continent. That is to say that there's no answers which will be black and white. There'll be always yellow and green and orange and that. And so please in your mind do paint this continent with that diversity, with those colors which makes it unique but at the same time very, very, very different. So the question is changes in education. I think generally speaking, uh, we witnessed a very important and significant investment in education, mostly in terms of assets. Mm. Let me say that in the last two decades, if we look at the development of the Millennium Development Goals, although Africa is not going to meet the MDG targets, 
but it's the continent in development world which has made the biggest investment. In we had like 62 million children in schools, and in 2014 there were 129 million kids. So the the shift is is big, but yet still very below what would have been the MDG, MDG target. So there has been a huge investment in assets, but we are faced with very serious problems of quality. And also there is a difference between the investment in primary, from primary to secondary, and of course to tertiary. So where the investment was much bigger as in primary education, but the transition from primary to secondary in some countries, especially when you look at the girl, mm -hmm. child, who is of my major concern, sometimes it's just 10% of girls who complete, other times 20% who manage to transit from primary to secondary. So that's a huge challenge. The other one is uh, performance and achievement for children to complete secondary. One thing is to have assets to, another one is to complete. And the third challenge on this is knowledge and skills. Because one thing is to know, but also is to be skilled so that if for any reason children or young people do not manage to go to university, they go to join workforce their skills to do something. So it is, it is a, 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 a situation in which there's still many challenges. Having said this, I think there are few countries which have managed to have a bit of balance on that. Uh, if you look at uh, Rwanda, for mm -hmm. instance, if you look at Ethiopia, although it's a big country, big numbers, but if you look carefully in terms of how they build the balance in terms of general education, technical, vocational training, and then the tertiary mm -hmm. education, then you can feel that there are countries which manage to have a better balance than others. My suggestion, for instance, to SOAS students would be take the time and really put the map of the continent and say, who has managed to do what? Because then we will move away from this tendency of generalizing statements about the continent and we'll be able then to be much more accurate and acknowledge and value progress here and acknowledge uh, challenges mm. in other places. I think that's absolutely right and hopefully is a lesson that we try to, to put across and, kind of regularly. And challenging, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, um, so, so if we pick up on that and we talk about these, these remaining twin challenges, one being there is still an access problem, particularly for, for, for girls in education, and the other is that where there has been remarkable progress in access, there's still a big quality challenge. Maybe I should uh, dwell a bit on uh, the children who are out of school. Right. 
It is true. I mean, of the 59, they say 59 children globally who are out of school, about 30 million are on the continent. And let's look and say, where are they? And who are they? Because now we are moving from MDGs to SDGs to uh, an approach in which we are saying, leave no one behind, which means we have to embrace every single child to come into the system. So you need to know the 30 million, where are they and who are they? First, it's children who are in situations of conflict. They have been affected by conflict. So they are in emergency situations. They are children who are in nomadic communities where the regular way of setting up a school doesn't work. So you need to find an innovative way of following the movements of these communities and yet get children into school. You have children who are in situations of extreme poverty. So it's not poverty generally speaking. It means you need to develop a very specific strategy of working with families to allow families to, I mean, free the children because they are in a much dire situation. And you also, we also, when I say who now, uh, as a continent we are challenged with identifying and engaging properly children living with disability. So that's to say 30 million are not numbers, are specific children in specific circumstances and they require a very specific kind of strategy, each one of them. And if we disaggregate, if we break down that you know, big continent into lots of different countries, do you see particular examples where there have been very effective strategies to address those, those groups, those most disadvantaged? I would say no. That's mm. precisely where we came to uh, the end of the MDGs, mm -hmm. and we realized that when there is a concentration of people, it's relatively much easier to have a school and you bring all children together. When they're scattered then, we had to identify these cases precisely in the process of transition from MDGs to sustainable development goals. And that's when we had to ask these questions. Who are they, where they are, and what should be done in the future? But so far, I would say honestly that we don't have very uh, accurate kind of uh, uh, strategies. There's, a, there's a, another dimension, or there's several, to, to the education issue, but one of them is very much about the relationship between education and employment and economic development. And it, it, it used in the past always to be said, well, there's a lack of skills that impedes economic development in Africa, that unemployment is caused by the lack of education. Now we've had, in many parts of Africa, very rapid expansion in, as you say, certain levels of education, and yet it doesn't always seem to translate very smoothly into employment. There's a possibly apocryphal story of, of uh, some, some uh, two posts being advertised in Tanzania for Form 4 certificate leavers and the whole national stadium being filled up with, with applicants. Is this a, a big concern of yours to try and work it through this contradiction? I think it's the concern of uh, all the leadership mm. on the continent. The, the education system which uh, we have been using is mostly in giving the uh, broad understanding of knowledge, but without 
really a good balance between skills development. This is one. The, the, the vocational and the technical, which ends up even in tertiary uh, education, are not necessarily aligned with the main strategic areas which have been defined as of development. What I'm trying to say is you may have a country which is based on mineral resources, but then the system doesn't prepare from the basic to the medium to the tertiary education, even in terms of scientists at the top, top level, to form and to train a critical mass which is going to be then absorbed by the economy and in one way also invest back into education. There is this lack of uh, alignment. And I have to say also that uh, uh, the world has changed and it's changing for us in Africa as well. And so what was the need in the 90s are not the needs in 2015. And the education system has not turned around to respond to that. Mm -hmm. So it is a more profound kind of reflection and reform which is required, not only to meet the needs of today. The second point I want to make of this is that education is one of those sectors where you have to plan in long term. You have to be able to say, what are going to be your needs in 20, 30 years? And begin to, not only to reform the system, to train the trainers so that you will have then the massive and the critical mass you need much later. And sometimes you find that uh, our governments do not plan long term. They do plan according, I mean, the electoral cycles we have, which is 10 years. So that has led to some disruptions. I think one of the issues we have to learn and we cannot compromise is planning education as a long-term investment, knowing what are the needs of 10, 20, 30, 40 years. This is what societies who are successful have been doing. But do you think there's a, another side to this, which is, and I'm sure you're absolutely right, that there's a, you know, there are difficulties with anticipating the skills that are needed in Kenya, education of the youth there, or in South Africa, or wherever. But the other side of it is maybe there are problems with the, the demand side. In other words, it may be the economy that, 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 that isn't quite driving the employment enough rather than the supply of, of skills. You know, you know the, the, the <clears throat> I think now we are at a point where we know any, any country what will be the major strategic areas to drive the development, the economic development of that country. And skills may vary in terms of the detail. But if you are to train the basic and you train properly, you know that even if the workforce needs to be adjusted, if they have the basic training, an engineer who is well-trained, he can change from one sector to the other, but is a well-trained engineer. So what I'm saying is no one can anticipate what will be specifics in 30 years, but you need to train the basic. And people who are able then to adjust quickly 
to changing of the demand on the economy. This is one. The second one is that you need to have, I mean, the business community committed also to contribute to training because the one who knows what are the specific needs of uh, economic sectors are those who are in business. Mm -hmm. Government can provide the basics, but the, the, the business community has to cooperate in defining, even if you like, to define the profile mm -hmm. of the technical people who should be provided by the system, the education system, so that they will be absorbed into the workforce, but they will continue to influence the shaping and the improvement of the education system. So there has to be this working together. And to know there is no economic development, there is no business which is going to develop in abstract. It has to serve the system, and the education system has to serve also the workforce. And I don't think this... Uh, combination and working together has been the best in many in many countries. So that's work in progress. It's okay. work in progress, yeah. definitely. All right. Mm -hmm. Can we can we maybe move on a little bit? I'm sure people in the audience may have more questions on the education side, but if we move on to some of the other concerns that that, that you have and, and work with, and one of those is about promotion of and protection of women's rights. And again might be nice to begin by asking you, again bearing in mind Africa is not a country, it's, a, it's many, many countries, but where you see very, very important changes in the promotion and particularly the enforcement and protection of women's rights. I think the, the, the first thing we, uh, I would like to recognize is that uh, the continent has made really significant progress in bringing women into the political decision making. Mm. We probably can say from the last three decades now, you see women in parliament numbers, in government numbers, even in the judiciary. You even find in areas like uh, in science, they are not very visible, but you, you go into universities, you'll find women scientists who are leading departments, etc. but they don't have the visibility of uh, parliamentarians and the visibility of, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, ministers. But it, there has been really a, a, a flux of women in the decision-making. Where we have not been so successful, it's uh, women in business leadership. It's still very, very small. It's very token in okay. terms of presence there. But you were asking about protection. I think we, we have uh, managed to have in numbers, I mean, the presence in leadership. But I think while we do have legislation, while we do have even institutions which are designed to protect women, Africa and the world in global has a huge challenge in women's protection. How do I put this? I think there's a shift in which uh, women are coming up very strongly to influence society, and men are feeling that the space which they used to occupy alone now has to be shared with women. And that shift it is creating attention. And that's why globally you have the so-called gender violence as endemic. It has nothing to do with the uh, developing countries or developed world. Everywhere 
we do have that issue of gender violence. What does it mean? It is while you empower women, you, you, you have also to be able to um, manage the, the fears and insecurities of men for them to accept that it is a changing which is beneficial to both and there's no one who is being threatened, there's no one who is losing control. Because I think the issue is control of power. Mm. And because men, many times, they feel they, they, they may lose that control, and the response is violence against women. So for a while, So protection means... is not necessarily in terms of legislation or institution. Protection is mostly in accepting this change, mm. which make both sex more humane, much more equal, accept one another without fear and without, I mean, threat. And mm. I think, so it's more in terms of mindset, attitude, and behavior. And this is what we, we, we feel. For instance, in our schools, if I can, mm. I can refer, uh, one is that we need to uh, make sure that the, the, the infrastructure in schools does accommodate girls with their specific needs. But what is happening is that you, 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 you realize with concern that violence in schools is increasing. So it's not a question of infrastructure. It's not even a question of whether boys and girls have access to the same school, the same curriculum, the same teachers. It's how they relate to one another. So it's an issue of relationship which is not necessarily characteristic of Africa alone. So I think we all, as a human family, we have to begin to question how we have been socialized and how we need to move to accept one another, women without, I mean, the insecurities and to occupy this space with the affirming and asserting themselves because it's their right, it's their space. But men, at the same time, to share the space without feeling threatened or feeling, I mean, the fear that they're losing control. They have to share, I mean. And so uh, that's, 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 that's where we are. And I think it's important to have the infrastructural mechanism of mm -hmm. protection or the institutional mechanisms of protection, but more impart importantly, I think we have to address the mindset, the attitudes, and behavior. And presumably that, that can happen both from the top and, and, and from below. So there's the message getting through by example from uh, male, male and female leaders in, 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 in Africa. Do you think the right messages are being promoted? I think you put it right. It's precisely, I mean, uh, uh, women's leadership mm. and male leadership. And I have to accept the criticism. I have been in uh, women's rights for many, for many years. We have been focusing mostly on women. And it's, it's correct, because they are the ones who have to lead the process of how they affirm and assert themselves. But now we are at a point where we have to, to move together without ignoring, I mean, male leadership. Because now, when you have the numbers, as I'm saying, and it comes to attitudes, then it has to be both. It has to be both. So the message has to come from the community. Actually, let me begin by saying, from the family level, mm. 
to community level, to district, to province, national, global, to say, look, we are here as human, and there's nothing which make me as a female person less valuable than a human being who is a male. And in that, the way we relate and we treat one another then has to change. And we identify in different communities, in different countries, what are the issues which are causing much more clash and how do we address them together. And I think we have not been, as a human family, very good on this. We, we, we have the, the, the women's groups, I mean, uh, uh, pushing for their agenda uh, without mm. bringing, bringing the other side uh, uh, along. And given also the fact that uh, the moment we as women are much more uh, clear, not only clear, but much stronger in the way we, we relate to both, we have a huge influence from the family side because they, that's where the seeds are sold from family to begin to treat a girl, a girl and a boy as equals and not to allow the stereotypes to continue to reproduce themselves from the family. And if we had the time here, I could give examples of how is it that we, even some of us who are human rights people, but back home when we treat our own children, sometimes we don't, we don't practice what we, we, we preach. But maybe you can give one or two examples of you know, how the, your, the trust that you run, how that works, because I think it's, its model, its approach is to try and connect already existing groups and to amplify their voice through networks. And the, other... the Trust has chosen, one, it's one of the programs. Mm. One of the programs we chose to be uh, heavily engaged is uh, the, the, the uh, elimination of child marriage. Right. And so we opted to use education as the entry point as the strategy to prevent child marriage. And doing this, we look at, one, it's the school, where you have, I mean, the headmasters and, and teachers, and you have the children together, where this issue of mindset has to be worked in. But it, at the same time, you have to work with the community. If you don't go to the family, and that's why I'm saying not community alone, to the family, the decision to give away a girl to be married at the age of 8, 10, 11 is made by parents. It's not made at a community hall. So it has to go to the detail of every family understanding that a boy and a girl, they have to be treated equally and given the same opportunities. So the trust has opted to establish what we call alliances which is start from the village, from the district, from the province, and the national. So this big alliance brings politicians, it brings uh, uh, business people, it brings traditional leaders, religious leaders, women's organizations, youth organizations, you name it, to begin to discuss together and take responsibility for the girl-child from family to province, for instance. And debate, these alliances have different composition 
and they strategize what they have to do to make sure that they know exactly how many children are we talking about? Girl child, mm. of course. How many children are we talking about? And how do they go to school? How do you support the families which are extremely poor? Where they see, I mean, giving away the child is a way of getting income. To say, you can get income without sacrificing mm. the future of your child. So it's, it's, it's a process in which you have to do the two, the two community and the school together. And I think if we are successful in next five, ten years, that's where this issue of mindset, this issue of uh, understanding the value of every child can begin to show results in the way not only the child is into school, but how it remains in school, is successful up to the primary, and also it's this child will transit in numbers from primary to, mm. to, to secondary. And if I can just mention quickly, is that the Sustainable Development Goals, actually now, they're talking of giving opportunity to every child to attend at least 12 classes. So in terms of the huge investment which is going to be required, it's really enormous. But more than that, it's not only to allow them to be in schools, it's to retain them, it's also the, to perform well. So the challenge is no business as usual. Now, it has to be really something which is completely a different kind of approach. Yeah. So before we open up to the audience, let me just ask you one more thing. We've been talking about mindset mm, and changing. Yeah. I'm interested in whether you think there's another mindset change problem or, or, or challenge, not so much in gender terms, but in generation terms. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we, and whether there's a contradiction, we have a, uh, a continent with mm -hmm. by and large a very, very young yeah. demographic profile. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's a big issue that comes up or in the structure of politics, what we see is mm -hmm. committees, boards put together, which, you know, forgive me, are generally dominated by uh, elder men on the whole. But yes, is there yeah. a, a problem there with, I, with I, the example I, I being said? I actually said? am a member of the elders myself. <laughs> I have to acknowledge that. A young yes. member of the elders. Yeah, but we have, yeah, we have many structures like that. It's the, the elders which are global, who are global, and by the way, they are not only Africans. But in Africa, for instance, we have the, 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 the Committee of the Wise. Hmm. Mm, the Committee of the Wise, it's all made up of... Uh, Old people, there are no young people in there. Look at our parliaments, our governments. The government is beginning to change a little bit. There are a few cases where I was really pleasantly surprised to see ministers of finance, ministers of mining, very young people in their 30s. Yeah. So it is beginning to change, but not changing enough for what would be required. So, but your question, is there a contradiction? Yes, there is. I think the, we need to, to, to have a deliberate uh, 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 choice to acknowledge that the investment which has been made in training, in education and training of young people, it means there is a critical mass of young people who are highly qualified, who are highly ambitious, who can be extremely effective in government, in parliament. Let me say that... Uh, I was really happy to realize, maybe for the first time, 
at the World Economic Forum in, in, in June this year, I addressed a group of young people and I heard them saying loud and strong that they want to get involved in politics. I said, really? Because until now, young people would say, oh, no, 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 this thing of politics, it's very corrupted. I don't want to get engaged. But now there is a change of attitude. They want to be involved. They know that they have to become part of the change which is needed. So from those who are still holding, particularly the political parties, because it has to start there, in our system, for you to be in government, you don't go as independent. It's very rare, you can find. But particularly in parliament, it has to be a political party which puts you there. And I was shocked to hear that most of the political parties in, in, in Africa, and particularly youth political organizations, they have as average age 55 years. I said, good, look, that we have a problem. So the change has to come first from, not first, simultaneously, from the political structure, and really to give space and opportunity for these young people to take space and to lead. Not only to take space, to lead, to lead. And at the same time, I think we as the old generation, when I say we, I mean, I'm the old, old generation. There are others who are much, much not as old as me. But those who are still in active politics, they have really to accept that this is the time of passing the baton. So it is important to have the two together. I'm not one of those who says, oh no, I mean, old people now out and young people in. It's like the chain of life. And the chain of life in our families, you have the old and you have the less young and then you have the youngest, right? This is how it should be. A government, for instance, should, in my view, begin by having, you can have people in their 50s, it's fine. You can have them in 40s and begin to have them in their 30s. Why? Because the conversation with the majority of Africans, if it's led by someone in his or her 30s, will be much more effective than if you have a 60 years person talking to a generation of 24. There's a mismatch here. But if they are close in age, they understand much better. I mean, the mentality, the aspirations, and the way they want to change. Because at the end of the day, the future is theirs. It's not ours. I was shocked again to be given the map of Africa in which they were showing that the age average in at least 45 countries is 17. It's not even 20. It's 17. So how do you want a gentleman or a lady in, in their 60s to understand really well, I mean, the mentality of a population which average is 17, even if they are 20? Because then it's their grandparents. So it's as if you say the grandparents have to be able to lead the grandchildren without the parents in the middle. That's why I'm saying you have to have the three ages together, working together, so there is a proper I mean, transmission of experience. Yes, people do not like it, but yes, yeah, something which is called wisdom, it also comes with age. Um, so it's important to, to, to do this in a, in, a, in a systemic way, institutionalized way 
of while the old generation has to move back, but there is at least two generations who are taking over. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Let's, I can't see the clock, but I hope we think we've got a bit of time to move from there mm -hmm. to invite some questions. And I think we should uh, institutionalize bias towards younger questions. <laughs> if we can see any of them. And I can see somebody over there with a hand up. Is there, is there yes. a mic going, going around? We'll probably collect kind of two or, two or three questions. You go ahead first. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, my name is Chibundu. Um, the event was built as in conversation with you. And I came to hear about your policies, but I also came to hear about you. And I was wondering if you could tell us about your childhood and you know, like how an African woman of a certain generation, I suppose, rose to where you are today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Mm. Uh, who else do we have? Yeah, the lady at the front and then the gentleman right back there. Hi, uh, my name is Barka and I was one of the shapers in the contingency at the World Economic Forum in Africa that you spoke to. Um, and I also work for the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs in Mauritius. And I have found personally it is quite difficult for a young person in government to keep their faith why to be in government or in the public sector. I wonder if you could share some of your views on how young people can be successful in government and how to invite more young people in government. Because um, in Africa, the public sector is still very much important. Thank you very okay. much. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you very much. You Maybe with these three those? questions, mm. yeah. Uh, I deliberately avoid talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to be honest and say I ask Prof for us not to focus on me. And the reason being that uh, I have been part of uh, different social movements. And what has made me, it is those social movements. It's not me influencing the social movements. So I'm much more comfortable to talk of the issues I've been involved in and how the dynamics change than uh, uh, me personally. I think it's, uh, it's just... Uh, <laughs> but uh, for you, what, 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 what would you like to know about me, for instance? I can tell you. I can tell you, I can tell you certain things which maybe it will be interesting for you to know. I come from, a, I am a rural girl. That's how many times I introduce myself. I'm a rural girl. I was born in a family in a very uh, low-income family in rural Mozambique. And uh, one of the things which I'm so, so, so proud of is that my parents, particularly my father, 
made a decision that he is going to educate his children, girls and boys, equally. Those seven decades back. So he was really a sort of a foresight man. And uh, just be, I was born three weeks before he died. And uh, before he died, he made sure that my mother and my elder sister will, with their hands in the Bi on the Bible, to promise him that they would not leave any of his children go illiterate. So I'm born in an, in an environment where education is giving a priority of priorities, girls and boys. My elder sister, with a cousin of ours, were the first two girls to leave the village, sent to a mission, a Methodist mission, 400 kilometers away to get education because my father believed in girls as well. So as he was sending my brothers to another boarding school for boys, he was sending these girls as well. So when he felt he was not too well, he brings my sister, that one, he brings home so that she would build the bridge between my mother, who was illiterate, by the way, my mother who was illiterate, my sister who was already at school to make sure that we will grow, I mean, we'll be given education. So I am, if I can tell something which for people here doesn't make much sense, but in Africa it does. I am one of the people who can say by a life experience what education can make of you. And to say it's not the origin it's not where you are born which make of you who you are, which defines you. So if there is anything which I sometimes use to uh, inspire girls from rural areas, from even in townships, but who are in situations of challenge, is to tell them that, you know, you can be anything, anything you want. You just have to have a supportive environment in your family, and you have to have the determination too. To, to, to become whatever you want to be. And today, fortunately, governments, actually, they do invest in girls, so they give those opportunities. So if you want to know something about me is, there's nothing special except that <laughs> I am one of those very concrete examples where, for me, I mean, education, it was the margin between either really to continue the poverty line which was already part of my family, or to break to another one. So I can say by life experience that education empowers. Education empowers girls particularly, because I'm a rural girl even today. Well so, known for persistence. So that's, uh, that's, that's uh, something about me. <laughs> yeah. The other, the other thing which was asked here is, um, shapers and uh, how, how difficult is it to, to, to enter the public life and, uh, and, and be successful. I, I, I think I did mention in that meeting as well in, in Cape Town, you know, this, this, this issue, this thing called power, it's never given. You have to conquer. You have to get it. And you can't get it in isolation. You have to be organized and you have to be a group. And that's why in any change which we are envisage, we need to support young people to be organized. 
and they have to be in in groups it's youth organizations it's teams it's a professional whatever they are they have to come as a group and they have to conquer the space in public life the most important thing for you as shapers or even if the the global leaders is to determine where do you want to be in 10 years time where do you want to be in 15 years time you are young but you know that's where i want to be and how do i get there and some of us although in our 60s and 70s we are happy to support you we're happy to 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 guide you in how do you work precisely in these worlds of power and you make yourself not only to be present but you have to make yourself noticed and to make yourself respected and that has to do in the way you position yourself on that so i'm glad really to 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 have me and others we are glad to have a conversation in a long way of how because one thing in a conversation like this i can't go into much more details but the message for me to young people is be organized you can't change the world individually you have to be in teams in groups whatever do you choose to be and then you determine as a group where do you want to be and among yourself you know you dif you have different skills you have different knowledge you can decide individually but collectively this is why for instance a place like this so is, is so important you are from mauritius but you'll have someone who is from Tanzania, someone who is from different, you know what I mean? But as a group, and maybe we have to talk about this, is to say, if 2015 is decided as the turning point from MDGs and SDGs, what is the difference your generation wants to make in 15 years' time? And you decide in five, in 10, and 15. You are connected. Fortunately, you have these beautiful things which, is, which are called now, I mean, social media. You can communicate in seconds. So you don't have the, the problem of distance like we had before. So you can communicate, you can build your movement, you can influence change where you are, but as a collective, because alone, you'll be always weaker. Am I, am I making sense? So you'll, you'll do it in Mauritius with a group of people in Mauritius, but you have to do it with other young people, not only in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, as a movement. Your generation has to choose how do you want to change the world you are going to grow in, where your children are to be born and grow. You have to choose and make it. So. It's different, but I, I'm, I'm glad, as I'm saying, it sounds too, too big, but I'm glad to have much more time to debate how do you do this when it comes to situations where really the old generation is not going to make it easy to you. I know. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy. It's not going to be easy. But you need, again, if you have the three generations I was talking about, you'll find some of us do have, who are too old. And I just saw, I mean, uh, more coming in, mm. huh? Mm. That's why he created this chair of governance here. It's precisely for you to, to take a stand within that process in which we acknowledge that there has to be a shift, generational shift even, in terms of leadership. So I don't know what it answers. The, second, the third one is African diaspora. 
I think you'll be glad to know that uh, the African Union has decided now that instead of five sub-regions, it has six. And the sixth region is precisely the diaspora. Not only to acknowledge, I think we shouldn't be, I mean, caught up in the issue that, well, the diaspora is going to send money back to Africa. I think where we should put much more strength is how do we get the diaspora to take the skills, expertise, which they developed in many parts of the world, to take it back? Because what we need, yes, we need the money as well, but it's not, I mean, for me, it's not the critical thing. It's the, the, the knowledge, the, 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 the skills, it's the expertise which the diaspora, people in diaspora have developed to find a way of investing back into the continent. Because that's the biggest asset which we need, is how do we turn those resources which we have there into wealth which are in the hands of everyone. And I'll stress this, that we need to make our development in a different way. Maybe we need to define our model of development. Those inequalities which we are reproducing on the continent are simply unacceptable. And you young people, by the way, now coming back to you, it's one of the issues which you have to have very clear in your mind. It's not only to take over from the older generation. It's to do better than the older generation. And it's not only to do better, but it, to really build a continent of equity, a continent of fairness, a continent in which you have everyone having a stake, having a space, and not this reality which we have today or where you have, I mean, only a few the and the majority when we talk of poverty at the end of the day, the majority are poor. So yes to be young, but yes a different kind of leadership, different quality of leadership, and an agenda in which, if I can come back to the example of the old, old, even much older than myself, generations. When the Julius Nyerere of, of the continent, well, the Kwan Kamen Krumah and the, the Mudibu Keita and all of them, they didn't think of liberating themselves, okay? They had a plan to liberate their countries, but to liberate the whole of continent. Freedom was for all. It was not freedom only to some, okay? If you can take that as a reference, is to say, we, the generation of today, or the generations of today, what kind of Africa want to build which, I mean, freedom for want, from want, freedom from fear, is really for everyone. And that's your challenge. And I insisted in Cape Town, I'll continue to say this, what is your agenda? I hear many young people want space, but I, I'm not clear about your agenda. And I need the agenda for me to understand that it's not going only, I mean, transferred to some old hands to young hands, but it's also to build a different kind of a continent, okay? So work hard, produce the agenda. And more is there, I'm here, and there are many of us, we are very much prepared, I mean, to really to support you. And for you to know, you can fly. You really, you can fly. And you can be sure you are not going to break your, your spine, even if something happens, because we'll be there. We are still there to support you. So you're not going to fall, even if things don't go always well. You have 
people on the continent who are prepared to support you. And you have to identify them, and you have to establish a relationship with them. Okay? I think we can probably take one more round of questions. There's a guy right up at the, up the back there at the top. Gentleman up there. Yes. If you could just wait for the mic. Yeah. Well, my name is Samuel Opono. I'm from the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. Uh, you say that Africa needs long-term planning 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years. But there's a dissenting opinion that Africa needs short-term plan, a much more focused plan, yeah, because there are these long-term plans, but they are really not focused and they are vague and probably a lack of resources. In Uganda, for instance, we have Vision 2040. It's kind of vague. So how do you reconcile those two opinions? Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. Uh, Rob Tell, over there. Thank you, Chris. Um, thank you so much, Ms. Michelle, for your presentation. Uh, so this year, 2015, the African Union declared it the year of African women's empowerment. And there's even been talk about creating an African gender inequality index. And I'm curious to know what you think about these particular initiatives and how you think they might contribute to completely dismantling the status quo when it comes to women's empowerment on the continent. <laughs> okay, and one right at the front down here. Hello, my name is Sam Ha. I'm an economics graduate from SOAS. Uh, you mentioned about how we should start our own um, development strategies. So how uh, development um, models or strategies, so how effective or useful do you think this international target such as the MDG or SDGR? And do you think African countries perhaps start their own development targets up with their own indigenous institutions and do you think they would be more effective? Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Vision. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important to encourage uh, countries to have a vision, a long-term vision. But a vision which is a national pact. It's not a vision developed by the government alone. A vision where you have engaged not only the political leadership, but the business leadership, the academic leadership, including scientists on it. You have included women, women's leadership, youth leadership, religious, traditional, so that it's a vision which is shared by the main stakeholders in, 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 in a nation, which is to guide where this country is to be or this nation is to be regardless of the government of the day. So one of the weaknesses which I can confess I've, I've realized is that these visions have been developed but the millions of uh, uh, citizens of that country, they don't know anything about that vision. So they can't, they can't keep accountable anyone by the implementation of the vision. So when a government changes, 
a government will come with a different plan because the vision is was developed by a certain group, but it's not a nationwide involvement and pledge in which we as a nation, we want to be there. Not only to have the vision, it has to be very clear what the responsibility of the different stakeholders. Because that's when you not only abide to the principle, but you take responsibility and you can keep accountable other stakeholders. So the vision is necessary. And then you were asking, but now the question which comes is, how do you consult the short term and the long term? When the vision has been developed, adopted by all, then you come down and say, yes, I want to be there in 40 years, but what are the tasks which have to be accomplished in five years, in 10 years, in 15, 20? But it's part of the implementation of the vision. I think what has been happening is, even where the vision is, there's no always alignment between the short term and medium term with the vision of long, long term. So bottom line, what I'm saying is that we have been talking too much of uh, governance and governance and governance in the continent and the poor more is investing a lot of resources in government. But the problem is in implementation of this beautiful concept, Tell me, please, where is it you can see that there has been a complete, I mean, meeting of minds and hearts in terms of the main stakeholders and what to do, where to be, how to get there, and how do we organize ourselves institutionally, and more importantly, how do we allocate the resources for the vision to become a reality? So I think it's the process which has to be refined. And in my view, there's no contradiction between the long term and the short term. The short term has to serve the long term. And it's, it's step by step where you get to the long term. I hope I was clear about that. The other one is the year of uh, women, no, the year of women's empowerment, which came there. The year of women's empowerment. I think the, the Afghan Union is trying just to put on the agenda big issues. It's a way of helping uh, 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 member states to, in a certain period of time, to focus on an issue in which they have not only to review policy, they have to review the institutional framework, the allocation of resources, and the mechanism and processes. So during that year, it's just to focus on how do you transform women's empowerment into something which is going to become a way of living in a nation. But of course, you're not going to reach women's empowerment in one year, but if you have aligned and adjusted policies and all these things I'm saying, then it will continue to happen even when 
in 2016, you can adopt another theme. Because, for instance, last year, African Union had uh, food security and nutrition as the issue. It's not because it has been achieved, but it was to help countries to focus, to strategize, to plan, to allocate the resources, etc., etc., to do it. So that's the issue with the women's empowerment. I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, African Union or Africa as a, as, a, as a continent, has been making some significant, I mean, uh, 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 achievements in political, in political sphere. But I think, for instance, in economy, no, we are not doing well. No. Just, just, just try to, to, to close your eyes and say, who can you say are really the, the major business women on the continent? You'll struggle to find them. You can say who is the president today, who is prime minister, who is minister of finance, that you can find. But business, women, very hardly you can find. Science, who are the women scientists? I'm not saying they do not exist, but they do not have the same space yet. In numbers, actually, they are still much less than the achievement we have made in the political sphere. So, my small trust, coming back to what the trust is doing, we are focusing on economic empowerment of women. And we are working with networks in certain countries, not all because we don't have the capacity to do this, to have a process of what we call support graduation of women. What do we say? is because most of African women are in the so-called informal sector. They are not part of the formal economy. I mean, their contribution even, it's not counted because there's no way you count this, the so-called, I mean, uh, uh, informal sector. So we are going to be doing this. Every year we take a cohort of women to move from small to medium and another cohort from medium to big. And it doesn't mean that we'll succeed all the time, but we want to be able to say it is a hundred, it is a thousand, but at least we supported a group of women to move from informal to formal. And when they are small, they moved to, to medium, and from medium, that's the issue. It's to stop talking about economic empowerment, but it, learn what are the ways of making the economic empowerment of women and to make them big business. As we started with the political struggle maybe three, four decades back, so that in three, four decades I won't be alive, but my trust will be there. And to be able to put, I mean, a number. And you put a number, it's a thousand, it's two thousand, five thousand. It's 100,000, but numbers which we can say we contributed to move from one level to another level. That's what we, I think we need to, to, to be doing. But the networks as well, they are advocates, to be them to be advocates. So you have to stop talking to Grassa Michelle when you want to talk about African women. And to create a platform where my networks, the women in my networks, they will be the one to sit at SOAS and talk to you about what they're doing, how they're doing, what is the progress. And we call this program Multiplying Faces, Amplifying Voices of African Women. So it's not a small group. It has to be in thousands of women who have to have a face, who have to have a voice. 
So that's that's a part of what the trust is is it trying to do. Then you were asking about SDGs. Do I remember exactly how she asked the question? Really about the, I think the, you know, how useful these big grandiose targets really are, and whether the ah, and then more how, beyond how we national. come to African context. Mm. Look, the MDGs were really uh, a plan for the poor. It was mostly to address the the most uh, challenging aspects of poverty. So it was like one is the developing country itself, but the developed world to support the developing countries, I mean, to eradicate, not to eradicate, but even the language was quite instructive, if you remember. It was to reduce poverty, okay? And even when we were talking of health and education, it was to increase in two-thirds, increase one-third. So the human race, the human family was not yet determined to work together to eradicate poverty. It was just to make it a little bit less challenging in 15 years. And even there, we failed because most of most of countries didn't meet, I mean, the MDGs. And worse even, you remember, the indicator was people who live in, with the $1.25. Can I ask you, many of you here, are you able to live with the $1.25 I mean, $1 a day? You can, can you live? Huh? No, none of us here can survive with $1 a day, less than $1.5 a day. So the MDGs have had the merit they have had. But it, honestly, it was not, they were not aimed to support even the so-called poor to support them to get out of poverty. Even when you have 1.5, you are still poor. And that was the MDGs. I'm not, I'm advocate of MDGs, huh? hear me well. I was advocate, I am still advocate of MDGs. But just to say, the ambition was very small. Very, very small. And even there, we didn't achieve it. Now the SDGs, sustainable, development goals. My baby, what we are saying is we need to move one from an agenda for the poor for an agenda of all of us, rich and poor. The countries which are considered to be developed and the countries which are underdeveloped. We can only have sustainable results when these two worlds meet each other and they work together. It has been very clear. When you have some who have plenty and others who have very little, then I can give you the example and forgive me and explain to yourself, I'm not going to do that explanation, why do we have the Mediterranean becoming a cemetery? Okay, you understand? So. We all know 
very, very practically, it's not sustainable. The second example I can bring is many decades back, we started talking about climate change. And developed world was not really ready to review the way they developed their countries. And we continue to have, they told us, scientists told us clearly that if we don't change the models of development, nature is going to punish all of us. Now, nature is punishing not only the poor, it's punishing the rich as well. How many floods you have had here in Europe? Floods, which are, you remember? Huh? How, 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 for instance, the climate change has been manifesting itself here. Extreme heat, extreme cold, isn't it? That's climate change. Now, people begin to listen. They are beginning to listen. And now, we are beginning to talk to one another, understanding that there's no sustainability of the economy in Europe, which is not linked to sustainability of the economy in Asia, the sustainability of the economy in Africa and Latin America. And the SDGs, now I want to reply your question, the SDGs are bringing us to think together in that sense. Interdependence. And the agenda which is coming in September to be adopted, it's not the agenda of the poor, it's the agenda of all of us. Where we understand, hopefully, we understand that our future is common and we have really to have an agenda which cover all of us. Once they've been adopted, the way you are going to implement them, to domesticate them in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, and here in Europe, will be slightly different, but it's the same agenda. It's universal agenda. So the first shift is that the SDGs is not an agenda for one single part of the world. It's global in the sense that it is universal, okay? The second shift which is coming is that really it's not, if it's to be implemented seriously, there's no business as usual. We have to review the way we establish the ambition of what we have to achieve, it is there, but more importantly, even institutionally, we have to review institutions, including the UN itself, including that Security Council, which is uh, something which has been happening since the end of Second World War, and people refuse to accept that in 2015 the world is completely different. You can't be run by the same institutions. But the point I want to make is that institutionally, global and national, that's why I was talking about the national pact. There's no national pact in many countries, but if we are to implement the SDGs, a national pact is important. So when you say how is it going to be implemented in Africa, the first step is how Africa is going to domesticate as a continent. And from continent, each country to define clearly its national pact with very clear goals, targets, and indicators, and good systems of accountability, mutual accountability. If that happens, we have a chance. If we want to continue business as usual, we will have a beautiful agenda, 
but its implementation will be like the MDGs. After 15 years, we'll say, we didn't achieve it. So I think we have a big challenge. I come back to you. You young people, it is your time because it is in your generation. It is in your generation and in your name because it's your future. In your name, those SDGs are going to be adopted. Don't allow anyone to make pledges in your name without you exactly being part of it, without the leading, because it is your future. It's no longer my future. Okay? Thank you. Can I just say, I, I, people have been very patient. I know lots more people would have wanted to ask questions, but we do have to stop there. And I just ask you one more time to join me in thanking Mrs. Michelle for her very generous <laughs> answers and time. Thank you. Thank you very much.